This is the Walking Home from the ICU podcast. I'm Kelly Dayton, a nurse practitioner and ICU consultant. I help teams create awake and walking ICUs through evidence-based sedation and mobility practices. By hearing from survivors, clinicians, and researchers, we'll explore how to give ICU patients the best chance to walk out of the ICU and go home to survive and thrive. Welcome to the ICU Revolution. recent poll on the Instagram page, 87% of responders reported that their units automatically sedate everyone right at intubation. This is consistent with an alarming experience I had in grad school. I was in class listening to a classmate give a case study of a patient they had worked with during their rotations. The patient had pneumonia but was not in septic shock. They reported that the patient was emergently intubated and propofol was started, but the patient's pressure got soft, so norepinephrine was started as well. This made me instinctively scoff, and I looked around at my classmates to get a nonverbal agreement that that was silly. But no one seemed remotely phased or concerned at all that we were adding on more medications to respond to medications that weren't necessary. So the presentation continued, and norepinephrine was mentioned again. And I suddenly couldn't contain myself and I blurted out, why? Why was he sedated and why are we adding vasopressors to support unnecessary sedation? So this was a room full of seasoned ICU and ER nurses and it was crickets. No one said a word until the presenter said, "Uh, because he was intubated. I felt bad for the outburst and tried to calm down and briefly explained, Sorry, I just, I I work in an ICU where that patient would not have been sedated and wouldn't be in that situation. And then I slinked down in my seat, realizing how alone I was in my perspective, even in an academic and research-based environment. On a side note, a classmate along all the others rolled his eyes and laughed at how delusional I was. He ended up doing his residency in the awake and walking ICU and then worked there after graduation. We still laugh about the irony of how crazy he thought I was and how big of a believer he is now about avoiding sedation. So I think it all comes down to our understanding of delirium. I think delirium is probably one of the most underdiagnosed and mismanaged ailments in the ICU. It drives up mortality rates, increases safety hazards, prolongs time in the ICU, and ultimately burns out our good staff. But listen, we don't treat bacteremia by injecting bacteria into their veins, yet we continue to respond to delirium with sedation. I recently saw a profound tweet by Dr. Swami concerning the need for change in our approach to delirium. I knew I had to talk to him more about this and his contributions to critical care. Dr. Swami, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Excited to have you. So tell us about you and your professional course. 
Sure. So I am, I would describe myself as kind of a like junior attending. So I, I finished my training at Boston Medical Center last year. Uh, we finished off my training right during the, the, the peak of the COVID pandemic. So it, it added an extra edge to my skills, I guess I'll say. But it was, you know, it was great training in, in Boston at Boston Medical Center, Safety Net Hospital, and also at the, the VA here. Got a lot of really broad exposure on the medical side and and I love the ICU. So I, I now work, I have kind of an interesting uh, combination of jobs, but I, I work at the at the intensive care unit as an intensivist at Cambridge Health Alliance, which is very different, but also very much the same, still safety net hospital. And I take care of a lot of Medicaid patients, all that. And I also work for Medicaid at the state level. And so part of my job is, is doing health policy, that kind of stuff as a medical director for MassHealth, our state Medicaid office. So I, I have kind of an interesting role where I get to see the, the patient from really up close in the ICU one-on-one to really zoomed out and taking care of like the population health too. Yeah. How does that impact then your experience in the ICU when you see them after the ICU or in normal life? Yeah, you know, definitely. So it's, I think that through all of my training has really, in the starting, I would say, for example, when I was a resident and I was going to the ICU the first time, it was so hyper-focused on that moment in the ICU. And I was really just seeing them as this person who's really sick, who is in many ways feels like hardly a person when you first go into the ICU and see people, lots of lines and tubes, they're out, they're sedated. And and then over time, over the years, I sort of was able to to even then kind of really start to see the person underneath the the breathing tubes and all that, and, and to start to get to know people's families a lot better. And still in that episodic sense of still kind of, I'm taking care of this person in the ICU. And only, only later when, you know, through my pulmonary clinic experience and, and just with more experience and time, was I able to see people who had been in the ICU and then had had, and were no longer in the ICU and were doing well again. And, and seeing all the issues that came from the ICU that they kind of maybe carried with them. And also just, you know, some of the big wins too, the people who really recovered in an amazing way. And I think that added a lot to my perspective because I was able to kind of get out of the sort of immediate hemodynamics moment and really start to think of this person's life and, and that the, the role that we have in, in their lives when they're in the ICU and the, the tremendous impact that we can have both for certainly for good and in many ways for good, but, but also the, the harm that we, can, that we can either do or prevent when people are in the ICU. And I you know, worked as a nurse in the ICU for years and I had never really talk to survivors until I sat next to someone on a plane and I heard about his PTSD. Wow. And so that big picture really wasn't allotted to me until six, five, six years after mm. being immersed in only the ICU. And so I kept feeling like if we all had the perspective where we could all meet with survivors, that it would change how we manage them in that moment. And so you put out a really profound tweet that I wanted you to expound more upon as far as how do we treat a patient that is agitated, thrashing, mm-hmm. wild? We all know what we're talking about. We all have yeah. dealt with that patient. And it is almost like an auto set instinct in us to just sedate them. Because yeah, it's, absolutely. We feel like that's safer, more humane, it's easier, all the things. But you brought up some really good points. Will you tell us more about how all of your experiences have led, have led to this perspective on delirium for you? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I, I think it's it's something that I actually think we don't talk about that much. And um, when we have a patient like this, it's almost we try to shield our medical students from it, right? It's it's kind of like oh, we a little bit pretend like it's not happening. And what I'm talking about is a patient who is just floridly agitated, delirious, extremely vocal, right? Like often this is the person when you walk into the unit, you can hear someone just screaming or moaning and it feels like it's endless. And it's really challenging. It's challenging in so many ways to take care of that patient for, for many reasons. First of all, first of all, it's challenging because I think there really aren't any amazing things you can do in the moment once that situation has arisen. And what ends up happening is, uh, as you said, people tend to reach for sedation, right? And on the other hand, when I think there's also cases where we just have to endure this person who seems like they're in agony is seeing us really as the as the aggressors right so often and and yet to try to take care of other patients or you know in the unit and i think we get used to it we get numb to it i think in in a large way where we're kind of like oh yeah that that that's happening and of course there's kind of like a gallows humor that comes out of it which i think is often really inappropriate but but a reality a reality because we're in this this situation where so how many i mean how few other people outside of healthcare really deal with something like that, right? And, and have to actually have that in their work environment. So I think it's, it's interesting the effect on us, but it just really made me think, what is it like when a different family member comes in, not that patient's family member? What is it like when a medical student comes in, who's people who aren't used to this environment? And I think it's, what shocks them is, first of all, here's this person suffering, why isn't someone in there? Why isn't someone doing anything? And then second of all, how are you all just, just kind of working and ignoring that, which is such a human thing to say, like someone's, someone's there, someone's suffering, someone's screaming. So it really made me think, because I had a patient like this recently, and I, and I realized that the way that I so, kind of try to approach that is, is really different than, than I think our sort of medical culture wants and trains us to in many cases. So, so I think often, the approach to that is to, as you said, make the problem kind of go away, right? And, and it's, it's to use anxiolytics, it's to use um, antipsychotics, benzodiazepines, it's to use sedatives, hypnotics, whatever, to try to just make, make that person quiet. And I think in a, in a, to a degree, we feel like we are doing that to treat them. And sometimes that's true. If there's real psychosis or something, then certainly treating psychosis is, is really important. But other times I think I feel a little bit like we're more treating ourselves than we're treating the patient or we're treating even maybe the family. The family is coming in and saying like, how could this be? And, and in the ICU, it's especially, it's even different from the floor because in my experience, a lot of the time, this is someone who's not that stable hemodynamically from a respiratory status standpoint. And, and that's the only thing sometimes keeping them from getting deeply sedated because they're going to get reintubated. And so we're, we're just, you know, we're not always jumping to that, but we're, they're getting boatloads of Haldol, lots of benzos. And I worry, I worry that that prolongs the, the situation. It really makes things, I think, worse. Oh, it does. And in the research, we're seeing that the more sedatives people get, the more likely they are to be intubated and especially mm -hmm. re-intubated. You've got... Yeah. So you're kind of talking about, you're alluding to re-intubation as far as patients that are delirious post-extubation. And likely delirious because we gave them so much sedation. We gave them so much. 
And now it's off because we don't want to suppress your respiratory drive. And so, but yet they're deconditioned. They're going to have yeah. poor, poor airway clearance, poor secretion clearance. And then we're inclined to give them more sedation because they're being too noisy. And so, yes, this research shows that we're going to make them be reintubated because we didn't do what was going to help the long-term outcomes in that moment. You really have this, this brief window where they're not taking PO and they obviously can't take PO. They, whether they had a whole bunch of meds they were taking before that were PO meds for uh, behavioral health disorders or whatever, they can't take that. Nutrition, they're not getting it. There's this brief time and, and you have to ride it out and it's extremely painful to ride it out. It really isn't an easy thing. But the truth is that the more you give them, you're risking reintubating them. And if not reintubating them, you're still risking prolonging, I think, this delirious and agitated state. Whatever the reason is, whether it's alcohol withdrawal or it's an underlying psychosis or it's uh, just florid delirium due to like ICU delirium, whatever it is, I think the more fog we add to the brain tends to just make things worse. There's usually a sweet spot. I think you do have to use some kind of PRN. You have to be able to do something. I agree. But there's a line where it's kind of like, you know, we've tried, we've tried Haldol and Advan several times now, and I didn't see a big change. And so I tried, I think documentation is a big part of that because otherwise the next shift comes in and everyone reaches for the same things. Everyone reaches for the same things. And, and we like to have medications as the answer, right? Like it's, mm -hmm. it's the way we're trained, you know? Blood pressure's low, I have an answer for that. <laughs> and it's different, I think, with the brain, though. One of the things that really struck me about dealing with delirium in the ICU was, was again, the impact that it has really on, on patients and families that come in and, and the impact that patients and families can have on, on delirium. And what I mean by that is that, first of all, people don't know what delirium is. That became evident to me pretty quickly. But they are able to tell very quickly that, you know, my, my father, my sister, whatever, is not themselves right now. And so I think on, first it's really important to note that family members can, are acutely sensitive to detecting delirium, maybe better than us, especially hypoactive delirium. And I think also they really have a role in kind of tr the treatment of delirium. They help so much with reorientation. And I, a big, for me, something that was really important was getting that language out about delirium and the role of the family to the general public. And part of the way that I'm doing that is actually in, in, a, in a card game I'm working on called Critical Care the Game, which is a card game about the ICU. It requires no medical knowledge to play. And I think you know each of like 200 cards is really filled with information about what the ICU is, what ICU medicine is like, and really concise, plain language text. I'm working with Sarah Merwin, who's kind of like a patient language expert, uh, she wrote a book called The Informed Patient. And we are writing these descriptions of, of things like delirium, hypoactive delirium, agitated hyperactive delirium, and then also things like delirium precautions, right? And the way that it works, you know, you're, you're an ICU clinician taking care of ICU patients, and you use all these, uh, they, they, patients come in with some diagnosis like sepsis, and they start to accumulate complications like delirium and, and other things. 
And as these things start to happen, there's all these interactions where you can be more likely to get complications and such. And you use different kinds of therapies to heal your patients, to get them better. And I think what I really love about the way that we've designed this game is that some things really just help patients, like delirium precautions just help patients. And there's all this stuff in there about what that is. And, and then there's, you know, the, the, the physical therapist card, for example, is, is, is really powerful and like makes a huge impact, really getting to that early mobilization and the teamwork aspect. But other things uh, really are a double-edged sword. Like, for example, the Benzos card, it, it can relieve some, some of the suffering, but at the same time really causes more injury and can, can kind of raise that risk of delirium. So all of these pieces kind of fit together in a way that what I'm hoping, what I'm seeing is that when people who have no medical background play, they sort of start to get it and suddenly they're speaking the language and they're saying things like, oh, well, you know, uh, I really want to use the benzos because they, this person's clearly suffering, but at the same time, I'm really worried about what that's going to do to their brain. And hearing that come out and just saying, wow, people really get it. And people saying, I really want to, I really want to get the physical therapist involved in this patient's care because that's what's going to get them up and, and feeling better and it's going to help with their suffering and, and all this stuff. So it's, I just love that we've built this thing where we're not explicitly telling people any of this, but in playing the game and working together to take care of these patients, it's cooperative, of course, they're able to learn all of these ICU concepts that are so kind of near and dear to my heart. So I'm really excited for the game, Critical Care of the Game. It's going to be coming out on Kickstarter probably in uh, July, in the summer. And I can't wait to share everything about the ICU that I love and all of these kind of pearls about, about ICU medicine really with the whole world. If you've been listening to this podcast, you're likely convinced that sedation and mobility practices in the ICU need to change. The ICU community is facing incredible difficulty with the trauma from the pandemic, staffing crisis, and burnout. We cannot afford to continue practices that result in poor patient outcomes, more time in the ICU, higher healthcare costs, and greater workload for the ICU team. Yet the prospect of changing decades of beliefs, practices, and culture across all disciplines of the ICU is a daunting task. How does this transformation start? It can begin with a consultation with me to discuss your team's current practices, barriers, and to formulate a plan to help your ICU become an awake and walking ICU. I help teams master the ABCDEF bundle through education, consulting, simulation training, and bedside support. Let's work together to move your team into the future of evidence-based ICU care. Click the link in the show notes of this episode to find out more. I think delirium isn't part of our normal communication and a lot, it depends on the environment. Some environments are much more aware of it, well-educated, almost fixated on it. And I think that's kind of yeah. part of the wake and walk and ICU's success is that every level of the team understands what delirium is. Just like you go into any other hospital and we're going to understand what a acute kidney injury is. We're going to know yeah. what causes it, how to treat it, the repercussions of it. But when it comes to the brain, like you say, it is a brain injury, but we're not so fluent in that language. How hard is it to get a CAT scan? Sorry, how hard is it to get a CAT scan for someone with contrast to SQ kidney injury? And yet someone who has florid delirium right in front of you, the first thing people give is, is Ativan, is benzos. So 
it's shocking, I think, but it's like when you know, when you, when you read, when you understand, you read the literature, there's so much, there's such a world of understanding about this, but I think it's just that the approach to, to that patient for so long has been this. And, and I think it is tricky because, you know, some of those drugs actually work well for alcohol withdrawal, but alcohol withdrawal delirium is different. And even then, I think phenobarbital is so, so much better. Uh-huh. But, but even in the, there are cases where kind of that might be more of the right answer. But the problem is that just like there's not one kind of kidney injury, there's not one kind of delirium. There's not one kind of agitation. But we use a kind of one, one kind of approach. Yeah, it's impossible to do personalized care when we have sedatives as part of our protocol. Yeah. And when we don't, the team doesn't have a vision of the long-term outcomes. So I'm sure as a new resident or new attending, you're going to have old nurses coming to you and asking for these specific drugs. And those are your buddies. You don't want to cross yeah. nurses, right? Yeah. There's a lot yeah. of pressure to give them what they want. And, you know, I've worked as a nurse for years and now I'm a nurse practitioner. There is a difference in how hard it is for me. So as a nurse, I was the one holding the hands down, wrestling, working so hard to keep them safe in bed while not using sedatives. I recognize as a nurse practitioner, it's easy for me to be like, no, that's going to make the delirium worse. worse. You deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you're trying to navigate interpersonal dynamics, there's a lot of pressure to order those things because it is ultimately the nurses and the techs that are the ones that have to pay the price for it. You know, I think that you actually hit on the way that I approach this because I think a lot of the time we abandon the nurses and the techs mm-hmm. uh, to to doing to dealing with this patient, right? I can leave and go chart somewhere else. They cannot. And I think the way that I try to build that credibility and to build that that partnership, so I'm I'm not abandoning you. I know this is a big ask. I know it's not easy. Is just to stay there with them. And and I think that that the same goes for. You know, during during COVID, proning, proning was sometimes for places that weren't staffed or resourced or able to just turn, you know, this is a new thing for a lot of ICUs. It was a big ask to say this person needs to be proned now. It changed. I think obviously people people started to, to develop that because it had to be done. But in the starting, it was not a simple thing to just say, hey, this person needs to be proned and walk away, move on. So what I did was I would go and help with the proning. This, you know, not it's it's it made a huge difference to just be hands on with the patient because I think a lot of the time what I hear from the nurses is that I don't really know what's going on. I'm seeing this patient for a moment in time. They're seeing them for hours on end, and that's true. It's totally true. So the answer to that to me is to just really be able to spend more time at the bedside. Come running anytime and tell them to call me. I'll come running. Sit right outside with them put in those hours in the same uncomfortable environment and be uncomfortable there with this patient and this and the nurse and whoever else. And, and then I think you can build the credibility to be able to say things like that. Yep. That is such a good point. And, and when we talk about concepts, like I have seen that in these cases that you're talking about, when someone's agitated, delirious, yelling, you get them up and walk them, you hustle them, yeah. you wear them out until they pass out in bed and get real sleep. Yeah, it's easy for me as an MP to say, just get them up, move them. Right. But right. To say, if you need help, I'm happy to come in and get them up with you. Yeah. And there's a sense of security. And because especially at night, people are getting sundowning, they're getting even more agitated yeah. at night. The physical therapy's not there. You need yeah. an extra hand. Walk the talk. 
Right. And, and there's the partnership is so important there because it goes both ways. And I need to listen when the nurse says, no, there's these very real reasons why that's not a good idea. But unless we have that kind of mutual understanding of what we're trying to get done, it doesn't, it doesn't, we can't get there. And for example, the, you know, the nurse has such keen insight into what's going on and what's practically involved in doing things for this patient. And, and getting on the same page isn't, can't be assumed. For example, for example, maybe it's the tethers that are the problem. And the nurse doesn't know that I think it's actually perfectly reasonable to turn off this, this, and this trip to, you know, to, to time these meds differently or whatever, right? They have, a, they have a ton of work to do. They're really kind of hyper zoomed in on, I need to do this, this, and this. And I, they're not thinking, can I turn this off? Can I stop this? Of course they are sometimes, but that's kind of a decision we make together. So you can get rid of tethers. You can do all these things and like create a better environment. And then everyone's on the same page. Oh, that's great. That's why um, delirium should be part of our communication during rounds, right? Where you have pharmacist, everyone's yeah. there. And so they can change all those timings in a collaborative kind of way to make sure that we're working towards all of those same goals and preventing delirium. Otherwise, it's all down to the nurses. And that's not fair. It's not just not fair. It's not practical. It's not the way you want your family member to be cared for, right? You really want it to be that everyone's so much on the same page in my kind of like dream ICU that, that the physical therapists are, you know when they're going to come and everything is kind of, it's not just everything's around the physical therapist, everything is in, in, around everyone. Everyone's on the same page. Like the patient's schedule should be so obvious for everyone to look at and see, oh, okay, physical therapy is going to be coming at this time. That means we should time the meds like this. That means that we should try to be there to help or whatever, you know? I don't think, I think, you know, think about getting different consultants on the same page. How hard is it just to get two different teams, like, you know, a consultant in the room at the same time as a family member? It's so hard. But that's the kind of collaboration that really makes a huge difference for patients and families and for staff. It makes, it makes the, li like the lives of staff better. Yeah, and preventing delirium makes everyone's workload so much everyone. easier. But if you don't have the infrastructure in place to have those protocols, to have that consistency in care, then, yeah. then it's, it's not practical, like you say. And you say your dream ICU, and I am always talking about this awake and walking ICU, but it, <laughs> it really is a dream ICU. This is why people come and tour it. Everyone is on the same page about this. Everyone, we've talked previously about how the ICU actually hires a lot of new grads, nurses that are new into to the critical care world because they start fresh and this becomes normal. And we start out with a very clear education on what delirium is, and how to prevent it. We have protocols in place to prevent delirium on most everyone. And so when physical therapy comes in in the morning, patients are awake because they were never sedated, right? Mm. Oftentimes they're already in the chair. The nurses have already gotten them up in the wow. chair. They're yeah. writing on their board saying, what time is physical therapy coming? The team wow. in the rounds in the morning have already kind of talked about, okay, this person has an MRI right now. This person has this, this patient's doing poorly. Okay. When are you walking your patient? Okay. And they already have a plan wow. to help each other walk their patients according to their needs, what's going on. And so one thing that I wish what you did is that to have physical therapy in rounds with us, but in reality, while we're doing rounds, we're seeing our vintage patients walk around the walk. Yeah. Yeah. And so they sit there and wave at us and we're like, Oh, that's the one we're talking <laughs> about. Hi. You know, and well, it's and really then physical cool therapy comes back and reports to me as a nurse practitioner and tells me, they yeah. tell me, 
how their brain's doing, how their stamina's doing, their respiratory status. They gave me so much feedback. And the nurses are part of that so closely in rounds. Yeah. They're telling us how much sleep they got. They can smell delirium, the slightest bit of delirium <laughs> from a mile away. And again, yeah. most of these patients are on mechanical ventilation. Wow. But they can say, hey, their their handwriting is getting a little bit looser. Oh my gosh. They're, wow. they're not saying they're not writing as complete sentences as they did before. Like they, yeah. they know they, they just know their patients, but if we automatically sedate them, we miss that boat. And then we cause so much more work on the back end yeah. when we exudate them and they're screaming and they're too weak to get up and, and all the problems. You can exudate them that easily. And, and we can, because I mean, once they get to that point, they're right, 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 right. Because they, their, their success rate is so much better. But that perspective of even an intubated patient that is agitated or thrashing or delirious, you know, you got an, a kidney injury, you're not going to give them more contrast to treat right. that kidney interest, injury. You have a brain injury, you're not going to give them more sedation right. because they have a brain injury, because they have delirium. And so I just loved your perspective on that. But it is, it's a big change in our community. It's a big change. But, you know, it's also really cool because when you said that the physical therapist walks in, the patient's already in the chair. That means the physical therapist is working at the top of their license. And that's, that's kind of what we want. We want everyone to be able to do the, you know, I, I hear all the time from physical therapists, we're not the only ones that can move the patient. And I, I, I mean, our nurses definitely do a ton of that. Absolutely. But it's not the same kind of all hands on deck to move this patient, right? Everyone's stretched, everyone's busy, but I really think that there's a level of coordination that can kind of make things move a lot better and people work together more. And it, it just gives more hands-on time with the patient, which is really what a lot of doctors want too, but can never free themselves to be able to do. Yeah, and I, physical therapists know their stuff. They did not get their doctorates yeah. to do yeah. passive range of motion. Yes, nurses right. can do that. Do they always have time for it? No. And should that be the only thing that we do with patients on mechanical ventilation? Right. I right. actually just did a, a little survey on my Instagram page and, and I asked, how common is it for physical therapists not to see patients until they're extubated? And I think almost 60% of people said that that was common. That was in place in yeah. our ICUs. Mm -hmm. It made me want to bang my head against the wall because you miss so much time. So no yeah. one's moving for weeks. Yeah. And that's... But it's really, it take, takes a huge investment though to make an ICU where, people, where the physical therapists who are also going through the rest of the hospital doing all their evals and everything, it takes a big investment. I think that's why... But some of this comes from the ground up and just recognize it. For example, I mean, I think my residents all think of me now as just like this, this benzo hating person, which is kind of true. <laughs> you, once Everyone you gets laid thick, no person. one gets benzos. Yeah, no, but, I love it. But I think on, on the other hand, that only goes so far. I mean, I think it has a huge impact, but really we need much, much more concrete ideas of how to staff and where the, the money has to be there in order to do these things to, to staff to be able to function at that level. But that is going to, it makes a huge difference for patients, going to get them out, out of the ICU faster and out of the ICU better too. So, You working for Medicaid, I wonder, if, does that impact your perspective? Because decreasing sedation, implementing all these more humane practices yeah, also save yeah. money. You have yeah, definitely. Yeah. all the decrease in the ventilator. I, and yeah. I, I hope we can make those kinds of changes. It's incredibly hard, as you can imagine. So I think, I think what we really need is kind of what you said. We need to start with people knowing what a better way to do it is, because I think we have a long way to go. And I think there are still, you know, on the other hand, what that means is that there's really low-hanging fruit. There's really low hanging fruit in just being able to say, don't 
just try not to use benzos. If that one thing will make a huge difference, and you see it. I mean, we've had people who who were on a Versed drip for however long, then they get extubated, and and you know, weeks later they still have benzos in their urine. You know, it's and it's just you realize when you start to see that that wow, this stuff really hangs around and really messes with you for a long time, and it's it's such not the best drug to use. But you know what? I don't think most nurses know that they really don't. They're just born yeah. into this environment and they just think that yeah. that's normal. It's a normal drug. They're not going to question it. I feel like yeah. we have to make the research more available and applicable to people to understand that. And, yeah. Yeah. you know, we've in the recent years, Medicaid and all these insurances have started refusing to reimburse for things such as hospital-acquired infections and mm. pressure injuries and things like that. And we have in the research that delirium has all these very expensive repercussions. Yeah. And very hard to treat, very expensive, really bad for people. But I think what's amazing is that I really think a lot of people still feel like it's inevitable. And, yeah. it's, and, and it's not inevitable. It's not inevitable. You can dramatically reduce the rates even without all the dream ICU infrastructure. You can still do so, so much just as one resident, one doctor, one nurse, you can make a huge, huge impact. But it, it's uncomfortable to do that because it means that you're gonna have to be doing medicine in a different way. And, and I think part of it that's hard is that people see people are delirious and they think that they're suffering, which they are, but they think that the answer to that suffering is benzos, is sedation. And I, I just, I think that is a fundamental concept that isn't true. It's not, it just masks it. It just masks it, it makes it worse, I think. You, it, can't, sedate, you can't sedate away delirium. It's no, no, it just exacerbates and prolongs it. Yeah. And I think if our community understood even that concept, it would change that moment, that split moment of they're flailing, they're screaming, what do we do? If we understood that one truth, then yeah. benzodiazepines wouldn't even be one of the options that we would wouldn't consider. even be an option. It, but it's hard because you know our our culture is to treat things with with things that fix them, and it's it's really hard to say non-pharmacologic approaches to this because they feel so intangible. It's not an order I can put in. I don't get to see a result of it. But when you do the the ABCDF bundle, you get results. You do a lot of the elements of the bundle, and you start to see big changes. It's been really hard with COVID because without family at the bedside, that's oh. it, delirium. Now it really is inevitable because, you know. In COVID ICU and the wake and walking, the COVID section of the wake and walking ICU, delirium rates actually are not that high. Wow. Because we don't start sedation, right? Well, yeah, 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 yeah. And yet it's the not, lack it of family presence is a huge obstacle. Yeah. Even huge, still. Because they are such an important tool in preventing and treating delirium. Especially hypoactive delirium. So much worse. So under-recognized. But then you see it when you find out that your patient is quietly telling someone else that, you th that they think you're trying to kill them. And they say it very quietly and you don't notice it. And then you bring their family in for one visit and it all goes away. It's unbelievable. But they have, the visitation no policies and everything is, you know... Yeah, Dr. Ely has some really important insights on trying yeah. to encourage hospitals to change that policy because, again, very expensive, very harmful, detrimental, all the things. None of us would tolerate that. 
if yeah. our family members were there. No. Oh, no. No, I'd be storming the palace. That's yeah. for dang sure. A thought that came to mind, you do rotations for a week at a time, right? Yeah. And as an NP, I started doing that too. And that I think that as well changed my perspective. Whereas a nurse, it was three shifts a week, but it was sometimes they were sporadic. Yeah. I tried to put them together, but then you don't see patients over yeah. the spectrum of their course. And so you just see them for that one shift. So you're just kind of putting, you're putting a bandaid on the, the collapsing dam right. and you're not there to watch it break or you're the unfortunate one where it's broke broken, but you didn't see yeah. how that happened. And so it's really hard to piece together the big yeah. picture when you just get a 12 hour clip. I think it's totally true. And it, it, I think the continuity goes a long way in the ICU. And I, did, I think that's something I didn't really understand when I was in training because it felt so much like you're doing these minute to minute things and that's what ICU medicine is. And it's really not. There's so much of what you're doing that has an impact over days to weeks that has a huge impact. And, and what you don't do when you could can, can totally alter a patient's life. And your assessment changes day to day, not just because the patient changes, yeah. but because you know that patient better. And especially for Even something better. so subtle as delirium, yeah. looking into a patient's eyes and being able to really sense if they're there yeah. or not, their level of anxiety, like it, you have to really know that patient. And that's where nurses can be so powerful, but continuity for everyone can be, I think that could change everything. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, it's, it's hard when you see, I see medicine really as something that is just totally fragmented and just responding to moment to moment changes and you know it's kind of like oh tachycardia beta blocker we don't do that we don't do that we know you don't just treat tachycardia with a beta blocker but that is how we treat delirium mm -hmm. we you know we treat delirium in ways that we would never treat a hemodynamic abnormality we wouldn't just suppress it we would try to understand what's driving it and fix that thing I love that analogy. Can I snag that? I'll quote you on it. You, just, unless you understand the root cause of it, you're not really treating it. Yeah. And I think it's, it's also really true that that's why I really, I really try to, in my, when I talk to the residents about delirium, so every third or fourth slide is a quote from a patient about delirium or, or a painting they made or something, because I didn't get it. I didn't get how intense it is how bad and terrifying it is it's not just someone who's reaching for a tube it's living in an alternate world where everyone is trying to kill you where people are putting knives in your body against your will and it's just i think it's it's horrific it's hor and when you realize that it's uncomfortable i remember this is when i read rana rena Adish's book in shock when i read her book there, have you have you heard of her book I haven't Oh my God! You you have to. Sounds spread up my alley. Yeah, I'll, I'll, it's called In Shock, and Rena Adish is an um, intensivist at Henry Ford, and she was a patient for a long time, over and over again, in her own ICU, and she describes how 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 just eye opening it was and how terrifying it was. Like for example, she has a, an incredible description of of spontaneous awakening trials and how they were actually something that I think of as so important to quality, to patient care, to getting people extubated, how it was this horrific experience for her, where she would be like, like suddenly awoken, unable to breathe, panic, 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 and then out again. And just- I've always suspected that's what it was like. And I've been asking survivors and most of them were too yeah. lost in their delirium yeah. to even connect with their environment that much during those brief breaks if they got them a lot of them did not even get breaks 
but I feel like what, cause when I've seen it, you know, they turn down the pump just enough for them to flail all four and then they put the pump back on. Yeah. And I wonder if it was like being, <laughs> having someone putting your head underwater, pulling you out to get a, a breath, yeah. but not really catching your breath and throwing you back down underwater. Yeah. So she validates all that. Does she have a Ted talk? I'm sure she does. I think I've heard her Ted talk, but yeah. I'm going to have to read her book. Yeah, her book is incredible. It, it, when I read that book, it's the only book I can say this about that it instantly changed the way I, I practice medicine. The second I, I read that book, I treated patients in the ICU. It's still hard because it's really hard to be in the ICU and to really be there and to really feel it and to know what's happening and to tolerate it. And it's honestly, it's not it's not easy. It's not reasonable even to always be like that. You have to be able to have a little bit of distance, right? But there's a right way to do that, I think, in a wrong way. It's too easy sometimes to just be really casual in the nursing station. And, and you know, patients are suffering incredibly there. So there's a balance there. But it is, I really, I think a lot, a lot of my research has been on staff burnout in the ICU, nurse burnout in the ICU. And it is, you know, the relationships and the working environment, I think, are key to this. And it's, it's hard for nurses to be in the environment where someone is thrashing around, agitated, fighting them, and there's no, there's no help for them. There's no help to make that better. And how many times do you go through that before you, you just, can't, just can't bear that, right? Yeah. And, and to that, I would, also, I would again reaffirm that the incidences of that happening are so much less when we never start sedation. Yeah. Because I'm sure it is so difficult to have that on every patient. You start sedation on every patient. At some point, that grenade's going to go off. You have to unleash the beast on someone. And that is going to make you exhausted. Even the wake and walk in ICU, delirium is is rare. But when it happens, the team doesn't even want to start sedation because they don't want to drag that on forever. You don't want to drag it on. you got to just deal with it. But it's exhausting. And I think those moments are reaffirmations of what we do because they're like, wow, no way I'm doing this on every patient. No way we're going through this, putting other people through this because it is so much work. And it's, I mean, it's a hazard. You're losing lines. You could lose an airway. I mean, it is hard. So I think as we understand the patient perspective of what's really going on, then we can be more motivated to prevent it and to have that culture and that infrastructure in place to prevent most delirium. And when we have delirium, we're not already so burnt out that we're just going to mask it to shut them up. We're going to yeah. have some compassion left it and really be able to, so much worse. to treat the cause of it. Yeah. You have to write it out. It's really painful. It's really hard to write it out. And, and it's sometimes it's just not, it's, it's not tolerable. And I think our, our, my role as the doctor is to try to find whatever way I can to support that nurse who's in there a lot, to support the family that has to see that and, and reconcile it, and obviously to support that patient, and really to try to find ways to model and reaffirm the patient's dignity and humanity at a time when it, you know, I think one of the challenging things is that the ICU has a certain, there's certain incentives that will push everyone to act in a certain way. and. An example of that is that people will always trend to more sedation. They'll just, that's the natural trend. It will get, the things that get increased don't automatically get decreased. You, you know, like it's some, there's some issue where someone needs more, they're on it, they need more fentanyl, whatever, more, uh, they get more, but it doesn't, it, you know, once you have all the drips set up, 
the drips are drips. They stop being boluses. And, you know, I think that's a real trend. The same is true for paralytics. So, you know, you should hardly ever really need to use a lot of paralytic. And yet, once you, once it starts with a bolus and the next thing you know, it just is like all, all of these things are on. And I come back the next day, I'm like, why is all this stuff on? So I think you have to have that conscious understanding that the ICU pushes that certain things happen and we have to intentionally reconcile all of that. So maybe someone is, on, is, is, is sedated and we wake them up and they end up needing to go back on sedation. That's happening in most ICUs in most places. The, the level of sedation they're on shouldn't be the same as when you started. You should at least be bringing it down to the least. Like that. So yeah. And, and the, the indicators for sedation shouldn't just be agitation. Because yeah, again, it, it's going to be the same thing, whether someone has an, an airway or not, like they're, if they're delirious, yeah. sedation is not going to be the answer. And so no. I think we have to change that communication as well as, well, they couldn't tolerate the ventilator. Was it the ventilator or was it the delirium? Yeah. Yeah. And so, and a lot of times it might be the ventilator, but they, they, I think it's not easy to be able to really sit there and spend time with the ventilator and to understand the ventilator is really intimidating. Yeah. It's really intimidating for a lot of people. And and sedation is not intimidating. It feels like the right thing to do. It feels like it's humane. It's easy. It's going to work. So in the moment. So I think it's, it's challenging to say, no, no, no. Let's actually play with the ventilator more. Let's actually try different things with the ventilator. Because if they're not comfortable, it's some, like we may be able to fix that with the ventilator. Make the ventilator um, work for the patient, not the patient for the ventilator. Yeah. And I have to give my respiratory therapist more credit too, because I, I think I, you know, yeah. it's a skill set for nurses to be able to talk to someone, work them through that anxiety, that that yeah. discomfort yeah. at first. That is a skill set that we don't teach unless we have the occasion to, right? And so if you're yeah. dating everyone, you don't learn how to work patients through that. But also for respiratory therapists. Yeah. yeah. When they're always on assist control or always on these set set settings and they're sedated, they don't have to adjust anything. But our respiratory therapists sit there and they just they can just whisper that ventilator to just <laughs> go right with a patient. And so I think ventilator settings is actually a huge part of that as well, as far as being able huge to target part. the ventilator. But like everything else that gets into staffing. Yeah. You know, like a well, and culture. Cause I mean, really we're, good, we're two but, to one. I think yeah. RTs are like four to six to one patient. Yeah. So, or to one RT. So I, it's not that our staffing so much better necessarily than COVID's different, but the normal, COVID circumstances and ICUs, but the culture, I think, makes yeah. maintaining yeah. that a lot easier. So, yeah, so many good principles. Thank you so much. <laughs> Anything yeah, else no, you share with the ICU to... community? Sorry? Anything else you would share with the ICU community? You know, I just, I really appreciate my colleagues in the ICU community. I think that, that in a time when there was so much uncertainty and when people were really practicing in wildly different ways, I still felt like we were supporting each other. You know, there was an incredible amount of tension on how to treat COVID. So much, so much argument about how to treat COVID, right? So much argument about what, when to intubate, what to use, like what drugs to use, what not to use, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think that that debate actually ended up, for me, making me feel like the IC community really rose to the occasion to, to take that challenges on. And I think now we have to rise to the occasion to say, you know, a lot of bad things happened during COVID. People got, you know, I feel like ICU medicine was rewound like 20 years, 30 years in a lot of ways. Sedations, paralysis, this stuff is being used so much more than it was before, so much more than I think it needs to be. And I think we have to 
and, and, and invasive devices, Foley's are in all the time. Yep. So I think we need to like unlearn and we need to really be leading that to, to kind of reset a little bit and recalibrate. Bring the research back in. It's still there. It's still true. Yep. It still applies, especially still now. Absolutely. Thank you so much. That was powerful. Appreciate all that you do. Awesome. Thank you. If you want to join in on the conversation, leave a voicemail at 801-784-0472 or reach out to me on Twitter. Schedule a consultation for your ICU, as well as find supportive resources such as the free ebook, case studies, episode citations, and transcripts. Please check out the website, www.daytonicuconsulting.com.